You don't really need to know, or probably should. I'm Kira Revan, and this, this is the Sunday Seven. In today's episode, we hear about how COVID could be shrinking your brain, why optimists live longer, and the first human footprints in Britain. But first, it was on this day in 1781 that William Herschel saw what he thinks is a comet. After several weeks of verification and consultation with other astronomers, it was later confirmed to be a new planet, eventually given the name Uranus. Seven years ago, explorer Ernest Shackleton had just begun his mission of a lifetime. Aboard the endurance ship with his crew of 27, plus a few extra stowaways, Ernest set out from the island of South Georgia with hopes of achieving the first land crossing of Antarctica. However, just two days in, the ship found itself sunk in the barrier of thick sea ice that surrounds the continent. The ship was eventually crushed by the ice and sank in 1915. Since then, the location of the sunken ship has been lost for 107 years until being rediscovered this past Saturday, which coincided Incidentally, it's also the 100th anniversary of Shackleton's funeral. The project to find the lost ship used a South African icebreaker equipped with remotely operated underwater robots. Even though it's been sitting under three kilometres of water for over a century, it looks just like it did on the November day it went down. I knew that this was probably either the first or second most strongly built ice ship ever. And uh, I was just in awe of her construction. And I thought if there's any wood-built ship that could survive the impact with the seabed, it could beat the endurance. And she did. She held together beautifully. As marine archaeologist Menson Bound, he's on the Discovery Expedition and has now fulfilled a dream ambition in his near 50-year career. But her state of preservation is just absolutely brilliant. There are no wood-consuming marine parasites in the Weddell Sea. So, you know, the, the wood is, is, is as fresh as the day the ship went down. You can see her paintwork. You can see the bolts. You can see the ship's name. You know, endurance curved across her stern and beneath it, the, the, the great five-pointed star. You can sort of go over the taffrail. And, and what are you looking at? What are you looking at? The ship's, ra- the ship's wheel. I mean, the ship's wheel is, is, is there just as they left it. Dad Snow, the historian and broadcaster, was also part of the expedition, joining a crew of researchers. Like his colleague Menson Bound, he too was absolutely buzzing from the find. Here he is talking to NBC News Australia. Just looking at what's on the surface, there's the ship's bell, there's crockery, some plates, there's a boot, a mysterious boot lying there on the, on the deck. Um, there's, there's, a, there's an instrument for measuring the depth, which looks like you could use it today. You can still see the figures on the, it's like a clock face showing the depth and, and it's perfect condition. Um, it is, it is a, 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 just a, it's a thing of beauty in itself, but I think more than that, it just will inspire anyone that sees it with a, with a passion for exploration, for adventure, for getting out there and finding lost things. As for the future of the ship... We're not allowed to touch it, so it's protected by the Antarctic Treaty. It's going to be left down there. We've done a survey. We haven't retrieved anything from it. We haven't fiddled with it. We haven't done anything to it at all. So it'll stay there. Maybe in 100 years' time, who knows? They might find a way to lift it and preserve it and everything. But for for the moment, it stays where it lies. In the true spirit of the mission, the rediscovery project wasn't without its difficulties. We were in the Weddell Sea for a month. We were were moving up and down. We were surveying the seabed. The temperature was plummeting. We were brushing the snow off ourselves. And then we found it. With a few days left to go, we found it on the seabed. We'd start to give up hope, but there it was. And you know what's funny? Because Shackleton's motto is through endurance we conquer 
and they at the back endured. They endured everything. I, I, much, they had much harder than I did. They were working around the clock. They were in, working outdoors in the sub-zero temperatures, getting covered in water and sea spray, frost and snow. Uh, and they endured. They absolutely never gave up. And then sure enough, they conquered. COVID-19 can cause the brain to shrink and damage areas linked to memory and smell. As according to a new study by Oxford University, researchers investigated the brain changes in 785 people aged 51 to 81. Professor Gwenoel Duod from the University of Oxford was the paper's lead author and she spoke to Bloomberg about what this study means. What is really different in this study is that we had mild participants who were not hospitalized, so they stayed at home. They were well enough, presumably, to stay at home. Maybe some of them were even asymptomatic. So we are not seeing this kind of gross pathology that you would see in the, all of these other brain imaging studies that have focused on hospitalized patients. We are looking at much more subtle kind of differences here. And what did the study find? Very first thing is that greater, you know, uh, change in uh, the shrinkage of the brain, but also a greater cognitive decline. So what we um, see is really that um, there's a decline in uh, mental ability in being able to perform complex tasks in the participants who got infected. And what might this look like long term? We were quite surprised to see some clear differences in how the brain had changed in the participants who had become infected with SARS-CoV-2. But what is important is also to bear in mind that the brain is plastic and can heal itself, whether it's because the symptoms are, you know, slightly lessened and getting better or because um, the immune reactions or new information is uh, also going away or maybe the virus is getting cleared. So to come on the Smart 7 Sunday, we get the lowdown on Apple's latest releases and we learn the formula to a scientifically perfect chip putty. This week, Apple held its peak performance event. In Apple's first event of 2022, Tim Cook and Co. took to the virtual stage to reveal what they've been working on behind the scenes. As expected, they announced some shiny new gadgets as well as updates to fan faves. To get the inside scoop, we caught up with technology writer Chris Merriman, who had all the details. So, Chris, what were the big announcements and what are people most excited about? One of the biggest things is the iPhone SE, which is the stripped-down, plastic-shelled budget version of the iPhone. For the first time, that is going to be released uh, in a 5G model, which will be really exciting for the people that actually do have access to 5G. The other noteworthy thing with that is they've used one of their A15 chips in it. Now, that is quite significant because it's exactly the same chip that's gone into the latest iPhone 13. So there's obviously therefore going to be a parity on performance in a way that perhaps there hasn't been in the past. If you want the regular iPhone, there was no big announcement, but the regular iPhone is coming in uh, green and the pro version is coming in an alpine green i'm not quite sure what the difference between those two colors is but those are the that's the only real news on regular iphones apple now make their own chips a lot of people thought that they'd be announcing the m2 but instead they've announced the m1 ultra 
which goes alongside the original M1, the M1 Pro and the M1 Max. Now, the M1 Ultra is basically two M1 Maxes smooshed together to make something twice as powerful rather than being anything new, which is probably why they haven't gone with a, a new name. And the first product to use that is um, it's a new entry to the Mac market. It's the Mac Studio. Now, the Mac Studio, it's a box that sits on your desk, does most of the things that a MacBook Mini would do, but it's aimed towards creators. So it has outputs to XLR, which is what professional musicians use to connect to mixer boards or to amplifiers or whatever. So it's quite clearly uh, squarely aimed at music makers. Now, this was Apple's peak performance event. Does this point to how Apple wants to focus itself in the coming years? Are they maybe looking more at software over hardware? I don't think Apple are going to suddenly be yet another black rectangle maker. Um, they're, they're known for, for their style as well as uh, their technology. So I don't think they'll want to mess with that formula. But because they've taken the technology in-house, the direction of travel seems to be towards performance and making these chips faster and better because there hasn't been a massive, massive sea change in terms of particularly phones for a long time. There's always lots of rumours and speculations around what will be shown at these Apple events. Was there anything you were hoping to see but didn't quite make it to the stage? One of the nice things with Apple events is usually you can be guaranteed that they'll announce the new version of iOS, the operating system, and that means that everybody, whether they're buying something or not, gets something new because they'll get an upgrade. Um, so there was a lot of ex expectation there'd be an announcement of iOS 15.4, and in actual fact, that didn't happen. So we're going to have to wait a little bit longer for that. The UK may not be globally renowned for its fine culinary delights, but the humble chip buddy is a beloved snack that's been enjoyed in Britain for well over a century. With a little nudge from supermarket chain Iceland, James Hind, a scientist from Nottingham Trent University, has now found the formula for creating the perfect chip buddy. We looked at the responses of 2,000 people all over the UK and tried to find out what made the chip buddy special for them. And then we broke it down by region. I looked at all the commonalities. I tried to draw out the factors that were most popular in the UK. I refined a couple of different recipes and I did some extensive focus with my students who really enjoyed that aspect. And then I came up with the end result. With 2,000 responses on what consumers think makes the perfect chip buddy, James discovered some interesting trends. I was amazed by how much people love ketchup. And I've since found out, when speaking to friends and family, that I am in the minority. I tend to be a purist myself. I would just go for, for the bread, the butter, the chips, salt, vinegar, maybe brown sauce if I was feeling a bit fruity. Um, the ketchup is hugely popular. So I had to make sure that the equation accounted for people adding ketchup. Um, and I had to make sure that it accounted for butter. And of course, you've got to give more weighting to the butter. It's denser. It's typically colder. So I arrived at my formula, which I reckon guarantees that you're going to get that lovely so the moment we've all been waiting for, what is the magic formula for the best chip buddy? Okay, so the formula I came up with is to set the mass of chips at least equal to, so equal to or greater than three quarters the mass of the bread, 
plus the mass of the ketchup, plus three times the mass of the butter. And the importance here is that not only is butter denser and kept colder, but we're looking for a phase transition. We want this to move from solid to liquid. We've got to put in a bit of extra work to do that. And we need to balance the heat of coming from the chips with the coolness of the bread and the rest. What does that mean when it comes to actually constructing your perfect sandwich? And how many chips am I going to need? Well, I've settled on 12 if you're using thick cut chips and I base that on thick cut bread. So we're looking at bread being about 40 grams of rice. So that's 80 grams of bread in total. So you're looking at at least 60 grams of chips and you're going to have to add more to account for your taste in sauces and so on. So what I really want to come from this is that people start to experiment. I want people to take it seriously. Rather than just winging it and throwing in some chips, don't do that. Don't settle for a sub-optimal chip butty. Experiment, try with different chips, start weighing things out, start timing things precisely, and see, and see if you can come up with something that beats my formula. So to come to the Smart 7 Sunday, how optimists live longer, healthier lives, and we take a look at the earliest evidence of humans in Britain. Right after this. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to the Sunday 7. Follow us for your weekday news espresso or even try our island edition. It's in all the usual places. Whilst no one is immune to the ups and downs of life, established research shows that people who have a rosy outlook on the world live healthier, longer lives. With a new study led by Dr. Louina Lee, a clinical psychologist and assistant professor of psychiatry at Boston University, scientists now think this is because optimists actually have less stress to cope with in the first place. In this study, we followed 233 older men who were taking part in a larger study of ageing. And at the beginning of our study, they completed a survey measure of optimism, And then 14 or more years later, they reported their daily stressors along with positive and negative mood on eight consecutive nights at several data collection waves. So then we considered the association of optimism with how frequently they encountered daily stressors and their mood on the days with versus without the stressors while accounting for their age, education and their marital status. We found that more versus less optimistic men did not differ in how they emotionally reacted to or recovered from those daily stressors. However, the more optimistic men reported not only lower negative mood, but also more positive mood. So beyond simply not feeling negative. 
and they also reported having fewer daily stressors. And that explained their lower levels of negative mood, but that did not explain their more positive mood. Do you know exactly how Optimus minimized their levels of stress? That's a good question. We don't fully understand why. Um, we know that, for example, more optimistic men in general encountered fewer stressors, like they reported having fewer stressors, which explains their more favorable emotional well-being. So I think that's an interesting distinction in our study and a little bit of an unexpected finding for us. So it wasn't their emotional reaction per se, but kind of how um, their exposure to or kind of what they perceive as being stressful um, that made a difference in their emotional well-being. The analysis only involved men. Do you think the results will be different for women? That's a great question. In terms of women, we have not really seen, say, gender differences in the association of optimism with health outcomes. So um, for I would expect our outcomes or our, the, our findings to hold up um, when we look at older women. But of course, we have to test that um, explicitly. Um, I'm actually really curious about age differences. Um, and so I, I don't really know. Um, if the findings would replicate in younger adults, and we definitely want to um, test that. For all the pessimists out there, how is the research helpful for them? How can it change their ways and root the rewards of being an optimist? People are always kind of curious, you know, is optimism kind of like this stable characteristic or is it kind of modifiable? And evidence from randomized clinical trials actually have told us that interventions, you know, like identifying your goals and then imagining a future where everything has turned out well and that your goals have been reached or even more intensive cognitive behavioral therapy can actually increase levels of optimism. Um, and so I, I would say, you know, perhaps working on cultivating more positive or more flexible, balanced ways of approaching situations or interpretations of events. If you spend any time down under, then you've likely heard of the funnel web spider. Sydney's funnel web is one of the world's deadliest spiders, but one researcher is on a mission to understand them better. Caitlin Creek, a PhD candidate at the School of Biological Earth and Environmental Sciences at the University of New South Wales, has been tracking the male funnel web for two summers. I'd love to see if we have things affecting their movement like humidity or rain, because we often hear in the media, um, when it rains, the funnel webs come out. Uh, but we don't actually have any data to support that. Um, yes, we may see them more, but it could just be a coincidence with the mating season that they have. So very curious to look into that. It's also pretty cool to see how far these boys can travel in one night. To track them, the spider is first sedated and a little electronic tracker is attached to its back. Then the eight-legged creature is released back into the wild. I mean, every Sydney side has probably had an experience with a huntsman running across there car windscreen which is always a bit of a shock to the system but but why why are they doing that like in my opinion I think we're, we're with them all the time we might as well try and coexist and to do that we need to know more about them. on a beach might not sound out of the ordinary but a set uncovered by a storm in the Norfolk coast in 2013 was certainly something special. At Haysborough in Norfolk part of a million year old geological formation lies partially exposed. As a portal through time, mammoth, hippo and even hyena fossils have been discovered there. In 2000 a flint hand axe was found at Haysborough 
dating to around half a million years old. But that's not the most exciting thing ever found in Haysborough. That's David Waterhouse, Senior Curator of Natural History and Norfolk Museums. In 2013, after storms lashed the coastline, human footprints were discovered. To our astonishment, these trace fossils were 850 or 950,000 years old, making them the oldest human footprints ever found outside of Africa. They were scanned in great detail, recording them forever. Because the trace fossils were only semi-fossilised, they were washed away by the sea in only a matter of weeks. The footprints left in ancient estuary muds are direct evidence of the earliest known humans in Northern Europe. Dr Nick Ashton is an archaeologist at the British Museum and he too was astonished by the discovery. The footprints at Haysborough are truly an amazing archaeological find. They're without doubt the oldest human footprints in Europe and some of the oldest in the world. It really is a truly remarkable discovery. This has been the Sunday 7. However you're listening, do us a favour and hit the follow button. We'll be back tomorrow at 7am with the regular Smart 7 Ireland edition. Have a great rest of the weekend. Written, produced and published by Daft Doris. Hi, this is Kira from the Smart 7 Ireland edition. Just to let you know, we're pausing this podcast from Friday the 25th of August, but you can still get up to speed in just seven minutes if you search the Smart 7 and catch up with our UK edition. Thanks for listening.